I'm going to turn in my Bible, you can turn if you want, to Mark chapter 7 uh, and 8. And it will be on the screen behind me. If I'm using a different version of the Bible than you are, the same one will be behind me and you can read along there. And I'm going to begin reading Mark chapter, 20, or, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 and following. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. It says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I want you to know something about this message. It's a little bit more in depth. We, only got, we didn't even get a sentence through the reading. Did you notice that? And I'm already interrupting myself. But it's a little bit, uh, it's going to be interesting how we dive a little deeper this morning into the scriptures. And so what's going to be important is that besides what Jesus does and says in these passages that we're going to talk through, you need to know where he is doing those things and where he is saying those things. So there will be a map on the wall behind me at different points that will help you to understand. When there's a place name given, you might want to underline it or write it on a piece of paper and kind of keep track of that because it's going to help you understand what's going on. You're not going to understand the scripture without understanding the map is what I'm letting you know. And on the way, he questioned his disciples saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Very important question. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now here's how to understand this passage, this word Messiah, this idea of uh, Christ, okay? The Bible tells us that there are three categories of spiritual beings on this planet all at the same time. Three categories of spiritual beings. Do you know what they might be? You're all looking at the map, and the the spiritual beings aren't on the map, okay? We're going to talk about them, but the Bible tells us there are three categories of spiritual beings. Nobody, you know, speak all at once. Okay, there's the angels. That's one level. That's the same level. What's that? Human beings. Each person in this room is endowed with a God-given spirit. He gave that to you. Okay, and so that's what makes us different. There is a, there's an importance to being human on this planet. It's not like being a dog. It's not like being a cat. There's something different. You may love your cat, but not seriously the same thing as loving your wife or your kids, right? There's a difference between human beings and animals. So we have human beings, we have angels, and somebody said demons. That's part of the angel thing according to church tradition, doctrine in the scriptures. What's the other one? God. 
Holy Spirit. John chapter 4, Jesus tells this woman in Samaria, listen, that God is spirit and he is truth and he wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth because he's a spiritual being. We have to worship him both ways. We can't just worship him one way or the other. Now, here's the important thing to notice, that from Genesis 3 on, the Bible is filled with this giant conflict that you and I are very much involved in. Our spirits are both light and dark. They're good and bad. There's darkness and light inside of each one of us, right? Admittedly, that's true. I need your admission. I mean, you have, to, you have to be a part of this. You know that you're not perfectly good. If you don't know that, look at the person next to you and ask them if they're, you're perfect, and they'll let you know. This might be a moment of revelation for you, and you might need it. Okay? So you're not perfect. God is perfect, and the world of angels is actually split. There's a tremendous number, according to the scriptures, of fallen angels, demons, and there's a tremendous number of good angels that have still followed God. And the the demonic side of this equation is led by a guy synonymous with evil. The the guy's name is Satan. Now, that, that word just comes from the ancient Hebrew. It literally means adversary, the person who is trying to hurt people. That's what the Bible says about Satan, okay? And so Satan is out there, and the Bible tells us that he is roaming around like a lion, looking to see who he can devour. What he's trying to do is eat our lives up. He's trying to get our spiritual roots to go from light to dark. He is getting us to choose one way or the other. And of course, we struggle with this every day of our lives. Now, what you're reading in this moment in Caesarea Philippi is a moment when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter says this line. He says, listen, you are the Christ. That means anointed one or Messiah. And that has to do with a whole bunch of Jewish expectations that I have to tell you about very quickly. When the, when the Bible was built, it was built in about 1300 BC, and I, that's where it starts to be built. And that's metaphorical language. It was written, not built, but it, it's kind of structured, starting in 1300 BC with a guy named Moses who actually writes down these things called the Ten Commandments. And around the Ten Commandments, he gives the nation of Israel three different leadership, three different leadership positions, prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus, as the Messiah, lives out those three callings. The book of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament that he's a priest. He's the ultimate priest. He's the way that you and I connect to God. He is our arbitrator. He is our our go-between. And the Bible tells us that he is the greatest prophet because he is the greatest truth bringer ever. When Jesus came to the the world, the, the Gospel of John refers to him as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is that Word, the prophetic Word for our lives that says there is something other than what you've experienced so far. And so he existed as the prophet, but he also existed as the king. And this is maybe the one you have the most trouble with and the one that I most have trouble with. Because that means he has leadership. That means he is the authority on this planet. And so when Peter says this line, he tells us that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is anointed, as all of those three positions in ancient Israel would have been anointed. He is anointed as a Messiah, as a, as a, as a leader of the people, the person who is supposed to stand up for the people. And what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to protect and, and, and transform their lives to keep them from being attacked by this archenemy Satan, okay? Now, are you with me now? 
That's a lot of history in a short bit of time. And what we're going to do is trace how Jesus goes after the enemy and how he, did, how he teaches his disciples to go after the enemy in this passage of Scripture. And we're going to start not in Matthew or Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in Mark chapter 7, and that will be on the board for you as well. Now, I want you to look at this map because these words are going to be important. Now, what you need to know is, see that word Phoenicia? Do you see that word? South of that is Israel. Do you see that line starting with a kind of a big circle, lower right-hand side? That line going south of it is the Jordan River, and that circle itself is the Sea of Galilee. This is the northern Holy Land on a map. Now, I tried to get Matt to give us the whole Holy Land so you could kind of see it in the Mediterranean Seas off to the left, but he said you'd never be able to read all the words. So this is what we've got this morning, okay? Now, what Jesus is going to do is going to be very surprising. When he's facing the evil, when he's facing the enemy, in this passage, what you're going to watch is as Jesus goes around, he's going to leave Israel and he's going to go after the enemy. Any Israelite in his time would have understood that Satan was having a field day north of Israel and Satan was having a field day east of Israel. These were the pagan places where people worshipped demons and false gods and did all sorts of evil stuff. And they stayed away from those locations. And those people were sometimes trying to make inroads into Jewish culture, but Jesus and the disciples were used to a group of people who never went outside of Israel because to go outside of that area would have been to get in trouble. Now, some Jews did, but there was always a little bit of like fear attached with getting outside of where God had prescribed their boundaries. And so what you're looking at is the north and east side, and watch, there's going to be arrows that, that show you where Jesus is going to go. Capernaum, the bottom of that arrow, is where he based his ministry during his years of earthly life. Okay, For two and a half to three and a half years, he worked out of the, his home base, Capernaum, on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. But in this story, we're going to read as he goes to Tyre. And then we're going to read as he heads across and down and goes to this place called Decapolis. The city, it literally means ten cities, Greek cities. And then he's going to go northwest and he's going to head to the Sea of Galilee, cross it twice, and he's going to end up at Caesarea Philippi. With one exception, everything that takes place in the stories we're going to read today, and the, even the passages I'm not going to read, they take place in Gentile territory, non-Jewish areas of the world. And the reason why that's important is because understanding how Jesus goes after the enemy is to understand how he goes after this Gentile group of people who are pagan worshipers. Watch as Jesus ministers to people who are very much idol-worshipping, demon-worshipping people. Now, that might sound strong to you, and you might go, how do you know that? Well, we can talk afterwards. But this passage of Scripture is built to describe Jesus confronting evil, and watch how he does it. It's going to be surprising. I'm going to read beginning in Mark chapter 7, and you can look, you can look at verse 24. Okay? It says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And if you were looking on that map, right on the, sea, the Mediterranean Sea, north of Capernaum, this is the first place where it showed. Chris, can you throw that back up there? Yeah, see that? Tyre, okay? That's where this story is going to take place. But after hearing of him, a woman, I'm sorry, let me back up, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Does this surprise you, Jesus referring to this woman as a dog? How do you feel about that? He calls her a dog, right? 
Barb, you're shaking your head. That's it. That's, you, you guys are you're afraid to respond this morning. Jesus calls this woman a dog. There's this story in the book of First and Second Kings where uh, there's this woman, and she is the most maybe evil woman in the Bible. Anybody remember these stories? Anybody remember this woman's name? Jezebel. Jezebel was evil because she was the queen of northern Israel. And she led the children of Israel in this Baal worship. And they literally got involved in these fertility cults, sacrificing babies, doing all sorts of horrible stuff. Okay? It was truly some of the worst pagan stuff you'll ever hear about. And in one of the most epic battles of the Old Testament in 1 Kings, there's this story where her prophets, the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them, go head to head on this mountain with Elijah, who's the prophet of God. One against 400 to be specific. And they both build altars and they they call down fire from heaven. And if Baal brings fire down and burns up his sacrifice, then he's God. But if the literal God of the Old Testament, the God of Elijah, burns the, the sacrifice on his altar, then that God is God. And they go back and forth, back and forth the last all day. And in the end, the prophets of Baal are killed because they're proven to be false God worshipers. And the literal God of the universe rains down fire because Elijah asks him to. And the woman behind all that who hired those prophets is a woman named Jezebel. Now here's why that's important. Do you know where she's from? Have you ever thought about this? She's from Tyre. She's not Jewish at all. She's from the very same town where Jesus goes and is speaking to this woman. Jews hated these people from Tyre because they understood their worst ever ruler wasn't actually a Jew. She was actually somebody who came from Tyre. She was the king's daughter, the king of Tyre's daughter. And she came down, killed hundreds, maybe thousands of Israelites and destroyed their culture by bringing in this, this false god worship. And she eventually gets killed. Do you know how she, do you know how she gets killed? She gets eaten by dogs. In fact, her husband gets eaten by dogs too. Yeah, that's really pretty good. It's like you're a Jeopardy player, aren't you? <laughs> but that, that's, that is the actual story. Now, you can take it for what it's worth, but when Jesus calls this woman a dog, I think he's playing right into it. Dogs were not respected members of the animal kingdom in the ancient Near East. Okay, In the third world, when you go uh, to a town and there's a bunch of dogs hanging out, I went to the Coahuila Desert in Mexico once on a mission trip, and there are all these dogs, and you kind of feel unsafe. You know, They kind of gather around you, and you're kind of looking at them like, these aren't people's pets. There's no dog licenses. You can tell they haven't seen a, 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 one of those shots that veterinarians use to keep them from being infested by all sorts of stuff. And, and I was kind of getting afraid once when the missionary who I was with said, look, just lean down and go like this. I did. I went down like this. And the dogs just take off running. And he says, you know, they get thrown at, they get thrown stone at them so often that if all you do is pick up a rock or look like you're going to, the dogs just run, okay? When you call a person a dog in this world, it's not even as nice as it is in ours. Josh and Christina Hostetter asked me to feed their dogs a few weekends ago, and they have a German shepherd that I thought was going to eat me, honestly. I got to the front door, turned the key, and this dog's jaws are like through the pane of glass. And I'm just thinking, this is the end. I hope my life insurance policy is paid up. But they love that dog, right? You care about that dog. If it ate me, you'd still have the dog and you'd just show up at my funeral. The dog was more important. You know, in our world, dogs are a big deal. In their world, dogs were not. Okay? And so to think of Gentiles as dogs was a common practice. And to think of, of, of the city of Tyre as the place where this woman who was really evil incarnate came from, and to kind of connect the dots and say, okay, that has to do with dogs. And Jesus calling this woman a dog, it all has to do with each other. Okay? 
Can you kind of feel that? And so what are the disciples thinking? They're the ones being educated in this moment. Jesus is now in pagan, idol-worshiping, demon-worshiping territory, and he is actually meeting up with this force of people who actually worship these demons. And this woman comes along and he says, I am not going to heal your daughter. She's, you're just a dog. You're just a dog. What do you think Peter is doing? What do you think James and John are doing and Andrew? They're, they're, they're excited. They're happy with this. They didn't like the people from Syrophoenician anyway. They didn't like the people from Tyre anyway. They thought those people were idol worshipers. They thought they were evil. They thought they needed to be left out. And so when Jesus decides to call her a dog, I ex- expect that Peter just kind of goes, yep, he's finally putting these people from Tyre in their place. And the woman responds. Now watch for this part of the story, Okay. But she answered and said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying in the bed, the demon having left. And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through the Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now here's what's going on. You've got to understand that what Jesus is saying is this woman is valuable, but he's leading to the disciples to the place where they're going, maybe she's not. Maybe we're right in our racism. Maybe we understand this situation. She's an idol worshiper. We're supposed to stay away from idol worshipers. She's a demon-possessed person, or at least her daughter is. We stay away from demon-possessed people. They get that way because they worship Satan. How did this woman become what she was? Her kid and her family and their community were used to worshiping Satan. A little bit scary, isn't it? Now the interesting thing is Jesus goes directly to this town. He drags the disciples along and he educates them by healing this little girl. And she walks out not as a dog, but as a God-following worshiper. Somebody who has decided to turn their back on all of this old life and decide to go after God. This woman in this moment of faith changes everything, right? And Jesus says, no longer are these people dogs. They're people who God loves. They're people who God loves. And the disciples have to have some things changing in their head. The, the, the mechanisms of their brain are shifting and they're realizing that they've had a lot of false expectations about this God. God's love conquers evil even when it's entire. Even in Jezebel's hometown, there's no way anybody would have expected that. That's just one story. We need to move on. The next city he goes to is this area of ten cities called the Decapolis. That was an area of Greek culture, okay? Here's what you need to know about Decapolis. This was the the height of the cosmopolitan culture of Jesus' day. These people were people who were in touch with the Greek gods and goddesses. They had amphitheaters and and they had actors that acted in the nude and they had these tremendous uh, athletic matches where nobody wore clothes. And it it was completely different than what you think of when you think of Old Testament Judaism, okay? And all the time there were these movements of Greek-speaking people trying to get the Jewish kids to stop going to synagogue and to start speaking Greek and to start reading Plato and Socrates and the Greek philosophers. And they were trying to get these Jewish people to stop thinking culturally like Jews and God followers and to start thinking like Greek humanists who believed that people were normal, everyday good things. Okay, so there's this cultural conflict in between Decapolis on the east side of the Jordan and Galilee on the west side. And back and forth, there was this swaying match of of persuasion going on with Jewish parents trying to keep their kids from going over there. Some commentators think that when Jesus tells the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, where he thinks he's going is Decapolis because that's where you would have gone to have a good time partying, okay? 
So you follow. And where does Jesus take his disciples next? He goes from Tyre, he heads east and, or, yeah, east and then south, and he ends up in Decapolis, and there he heals, he heals this guy who can't talk and can't hear. And when that guy starts to talk, Jesus says, listen, you know what you don't want to do is tell anybody about me, okay? Just please be quiet. I'm just trying to have a vacation. What do you think the guy does? He goes and tells a bunch of people, and people come out. You know how many people gather? 4,000. It actually tells us the answer to that, that question in the story. Let me read for you this portion. This is in Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Here it says, In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Why are the disciples asking this question? Now we have to understand that Jesus fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, just a little earlier in Mark. And the disciples were there. They watched Jesus take a few loaves and fish and turn them into enough food for a whole crowd of people that might have numbered, who knows, at least 5,000, maybe as many as 10 or 12,000 people. Why did the disciples doubt now? They've seen Jesus take food and make it enough to feed the thousands, and now they're questioning. Of course the reason why is because they didn't like Greek people. These were Gentile. They were idol worshipers. They were people that nobody wanted to have to do with. And just like that woman in Tyre, they were the sorts of people that Jesus' disciples had learned and grown up thinking, you stay away from these folks. And so the last thing you can do is provide for them. Hospitality for a bunch of pagans like this, you wouldn't do that. And Jesus says, you know what? No, we're going to feed them. Watch what happens. And he, was at, and he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. So here's what's going on. Jesus decides, listen, I'm going to feed these people, and I'm going to actually make the disciples who don't like to wait on others. They were thinking they were higher on the food chain than waiters, and they didn't like it when they were waiting on the 5,000 Jews that they'd served previously. Now they have to serve 4,000 pagans and Decapolis. And they thought of these people as the people who were richer and smarter and better educated and were from the cooler towns. And here they were having to serve those very same people. You can imagine Peter and James and John at this point. The disciples of Jesus are going, why do you call us to this? And it's because Jesus is confronting evil head on. The, the church is going to spread out after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And as we travel through Lent, we're looking at what Jesus is doing and how he attacks and goes after evil. And the way he attacks is by loving a Syrophoenician woman. The second way he attacks the evil of his day is he goes to the heart of it, one of the places where it's most uh, propagated and talked about and teached, and he goes there, and what does he do? He actually confronts it by serving the people food. You know, if you have an enemy, what do you do? What do you do? You invite him over for a, a meal? You have him over and just, you know, kind of share with him? 
There's something about Jesus where his love is so big that he's able to conquer even the nastiest situations. These people sitting around watching him work, he teaches his disciples in this moment, listen, I can provide for you even when you're in a pagan culture, even when you're in a place where nobody could think there would be any food at all. He's going to make food out of almost nothing, just a few loaves, seven of them to be precise. And Jesus is going to take that thing and he's going to say, listen, disciples, you can trust me. Children of God, you can trust me because I am God and I can change this world. And so being the Messiah, I can actually change this Syrophoenician woman to be a God follower by healing her daughter. And I can attack the evil that's in her life and help it to be gone. I'm going to go into Decapolis, the place of this tremendous culture and this this arts and this learning that's all going on, this humanistic self-worship that goes on in Greek culture. And I'm going to take it and I'm going to decide that, listen, they may think they're enough, and that's what every Greek person believed. If we just pay our bills, if we each do what's right, if we just make do with what we have and, and do the best that we can, then that'll be enough. And Jesus says, no, the best you have isn't enough. I need to feed you. I need to take what you have and make it more. And you need me. And a bunch of Greek people left that day realizing they needed Jesus and they had no idea they had. The disciples are learning that Jesus can provide for them. Jesus can love across lines that they didn't love across. They hated, they had racist issues. They believed that they were avoiding demons by staying out of Syrophoenicia. Jesus goes and attacks in love and Jesus goes and attacks in this this area, the humanism of his day and the idol worship of the Greek culture and he attacks them by providing for them, completely contrary to their expectations but that's not where the story ends either. We go from the Decapolis and he crosses the Sea of Galilee twice. It'll show in the arrow in a second. And he ends up in this place called Caesarea Philippi. And that's the story I read at the beginning of the message where Peter calls him the Messiah, the anointed one. Now here's what's important. Today, Caesarea Philippi is still there. It's a city called Benea. In fact, in Jesus' day, it was called Caesarea Benea by a lot of people who didn't want to use the word Philip, who was one of the Roman rulers. And so Caesarea Benea was named after somebody in particular besides this guy named Philip. It was named after Pan. And Pan is the Greek god of open space or wilderness, believe it or not. And if you go to that area of the world today, Tim actually has. I wish he was here to tell us about it. If you go there today, there's a huge cave okay? And there's a shrine built up around that cave, and the people of Jesus' day would gather, the, the, the Gentile pagan worshipers would gather there, and the water would come out of the cave. Now here's what's important about that. When the people of the ancient world who didn't have spelunkers and all of these cave scientists that we have today, they haven't gotten a copy of National Geographic, they looked at those dark holes in the ground as truly mysterious, frightening locations, Okay. When I was a kid, my mom and my dad would take us on these family vacations and we would be traveling around Missouri or Tennessee or Kentucky. We would be going to these places and there would be these giant billboards by the side of the road and they would say, uh, cave up ahead, take a right. And my mom would immediately go, that is great. We get to see the cave. Look, there's blind fish. We get to see them through clear-bottomed boats. And my mom would get all excited. And us four kids, me in the lead, would say, yes, let's go to the cave. And we would start to go cave, 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 cave. My dad would get excited or not. In fact, he broke out into a cold sweat. My dad is just a tremendously fun guy. But instead of that, whenever he heard the word cave, he, was, he just, you know, he just closed his eyes and go, why? He was so afraid of this. I don't know if he's afraid of the dark. Next time he comes here, he's coming in Wednesday. He'll be here next Sunday. You can mention this to him. He hates caves, okay? 
The people of the ancient world felt much like my dad, but they associated that underground space with something else. They understood that the things they didn't understand probably came from the location they most feared. So they put and associated the gods of their day, the idols, the demons, and they connected them to those caves. And when they saw water flowing out from one, they were like, this is where Pan comes out. And so every, every year they would gather and they would worship this false idol demon, Pan, at this place. And believe it or not, they, I'm glad the kids are in junior church because the practices they did there were so horrible you'd probably have trouble imagining them. They had sex of all different varieties, including goats. And the worship that was done to the demons was this fertility rite. They believed that if they pursued this kind of fertility cult themselves, then Pan would make their crops more fertile. He would make everything they grew grow better. And so they actually went there, had sex with people they'd never met before, animals they'd never met before, all as an act of worship. Does that sound particularly horrible to you? I hope so. Okay, I hope so. And Jesus goes to this place and he drags his disciples along and he actually leads them to this place and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do other people say that I am? I'm a prophet, I'm, a, I'm John the Baptist, I'm this or I'm that. And Peter says this line, you're the anointed one of God, the one who has always been sent to conquer evil. As long as there's been demons on this planet, as long as human beings have been twisted between light and darkness, there has been a need for somebody who set the record straight, somebody who could come and make it right. And Jesus attacks differently here than at Syrophoenicia and Tyre and differently than at the Decapolis. Here he stands up in front of this cave and he says something. Now Mark doesn't record it, so you have to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, 13 and following to see it. I'm going to turn over there myself and read it for you. It's the same story as we're reading in Mark, but it's just a little more words of Jesus included. So I'm going to read 13 through 18 in Mark, Matthew chapter 16. And it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this town called Benea where this shrine is, and the roots of it are still there today, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, the others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This sounds familiar, right? We read the same thing, only in a different book. He said unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you, now think of this, I also say to you, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overwhelm it, or overpower it, or subdue it. He stands in front of this towering cave and he says listen there's a gate and the gate is what people have commonly associated as the gate to where gods come from and you understand that these are false gods but i will stand right in the front of it and i will say listen i will build my church on top of these disciples i will transform the world through 12 men and they will alter everything they will get as far away in, in the hundred years after Jesus' life, death, and ascension as Spain on one end, India on the other, India on the other, and Ethiopia to the south. They're going to spread out and they're going to talk about Jesus in cultures and in pagan locations that they never expected. Okay? And Jesus sits in front of this cave and he says, This is the mouth of hell. 
in your common understanding. But let me tell you that the gates of Satan himself will not stand against this church. It will start to attack. It will move and it will go on the offensive. The darkness will not have anything against it. Jesus the Christ will be preached in every city on this planet and he will change lives until the darkness is eroded and light gets birthed all over the world. And Jesus attacks. And he tells his disciples, you can't just sit by the wayside. You can't just sit in Galilee or in Jerusalem and feel good about yourselves. It's not enough. The power of God is enough to go into the people you fear and you hate. And it's enough to love them, not just conquer them, but love them. It wasn't that Jesus came up to the Syrophoenician woman with a sword or a knife. He walked up to her and said, let me love you in a practical way. Let me get rid of the demon in your daughter. He didn't go over to Decapolis and say, listen, you bunch of humanists who are, who are stupidly taking faith in yourself and believing you're enough. What he said was, let me feed you and show you how the power of God is this much more than your cultures. God can show you a way that you've never seen before, and I am God himself showing you that way. And then he goes to the, the, the place maybe most known for evil in northern Israel, and he stands in front of this cave and he says, listen, you've associated this with demons. You've associated this with evil. You've associated this with everything that's other about this world, the darkness that continues to erode your society, steal your children, hurt your families, and break apart your relationships. Let me tell you that even here, even here, the gates of Hades itself will not prevail against the children of God if Jesus is with them. You know, we're not allowed to apply this. In this sermon series, has Tim told you this? We're not allowed to talk about what this looks like. I can't tell you that you're supposed to go out then and actually attack darkness as children of light. I'm not allowed to say that. We have to talk about Jesus, and we can't talk about the fact that you and I are the hands and feet of Jesus on this planet today. Whenever we associate some neighborhood with darkness, whenever we think the drug trade has gotten too much or there's pregnancies that are going on too early, we somehow think those are the places we're supposed to stay away from. And Jesus actually says something very different, doesn't he? But I'm not allowed to tell you that this morning. We're supposed to worship our God today and we're supposed to realize that when we run from evil, Jesus ran towards it and he ran towards it in loving kindness. And he conquered it with gracious acts of servitude, acts of kindness, acts that change the hearts of the people watch, watching. You know, when I was a kid, I read this passage and I thought the gates of hell and I pictured us in our church. You know, and I went to this little church and I pictured people from hell or at least beings from hell, demons, kind of, it, it was probably a horror movie I saw or something. And he was shaking the front doors of the church and we were all inside locked, afraid, you know. We had the, the chains with the padlock on the front door and the, the doors were shaking and people were like, man, maybe they're going to get in, who knows. That's not the picture at all in this passage, is it? It's the gates of hell where the doors are shaking and it's the minions of Satan that are inside and it's the children of God that are pushing on them, attacking. It's Jesus himself who attacks. It's Jesus who's going after this stuff and it's the church that follows them that's making all the difference. If you're going to worship Jesus this morning, you have to worship him for who he is. You know, this passage doesn't leave us any options. Again, I told you the famous writer and professor C.S. Lewis once said that you don't have an option with Jesus. He's not a good teacher. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And if he's Lord, then you have to submit your life to him. If he's a liar, then you should walk away and never read this book again. If he's a lunatic, he's worse, and he should be in some hospital put away forever. But if he's something else, then he demands everything about our lives. 
He demands our worship. He demands our hearts, our souls, our bodies. He demands everything because he is the only one who can do what's right with them. And Jesus stands in front of this cave and he says, the gates of hell, the people of hell, the beings of hell have attacked my children since Genesis chapter 3. They've been hurting people, destroying relationships and wounding those I love. Let me tell you that it's going to happen no more. The living God is enough and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Join me in prayer.